Well, uh, welcome to the 2017 Farmers 10 Convention. <clears throat> if you look around and see a lot of people that look like they were in the sun too much yesterday, uh, that's how you can know who was out uh, at the Faulkner Farms at Brittany's house um, and working through their stuff. And uh, thank you for being here. I know some of you are here uh, who aren't part of us every week and are here on purpose to, as a show of love for Brittany and her kids and for our community. Um, thank you for coming today. Uh, this morning, I don't know what Easter morning was like on your house, at, at your house. Uh, we had some discussion in our house about whether this story should, should be told or not uh, because it reveals that we were watching TV in, in our home on Easter morning. <laughs> Uh, but uh, an episode of Little House on the Prairie was on our television because that's how we roll on Easter morning. And if you're not, if you're well versed in Little House, uh, you'll know this story. If you're not, uh, it, it um, well, the, Laura Ingalls and uh, a friend of hers, Laura herself, has acquired a goat. What's the goat's name? Ben, girls. Fred, Fred. Um, they've acquired a goat named Fred, and uh, the goat immediately starts making goat-like trouble. Uh, he, at some point, uh, rams Paw in the backside in the barn, then already agitated Paw discovers he's eaten up some crops that Paw has spent days and days uh, harvesting. So Fred is causing nothing but trouble, and they're trying to figure out how they're gonna deal with Fred, so they trade Fred off uh, to the little Olson boy, and uh, he does damage to Mrs. Olson, which no one feels sad about when watching the show. Uh, and then he gets given back to Laura, and he gets into Mr. Edwards' uh, secret moonshine, st moonshine stash, which makes mid Mr. Edwards none too happy. I'm not sure whether it's because he uh, a goat has taken his whiskey or because a goat has exposed him and his still. Uh, and they take, they don't know what's wrong, the kids don't know what's wrong with the goats, they take him to Doc Baker who quickly diagnoses him as a drunk. And um, the goat is just walking trouble and Laura at some point has an epiphany and, and decides that he'll be safe if we take him to the person who is closest to God. So she turns to the Edwards boy and says, who's closest to God? And he excitedly says, Jesus. Um, and she says, yeah, but who in Walnut Grove is closest to God? So they take him to Reverend Alden, the town preacher, and the, goal, the goat ultimately butts Reverend Alden right in the buttocks, and he banishes it from the church, and we find out later that he changes his sermon that week from God loves all his creatures to a sermon about the wages of sin. <clears throat> I tell you that story because I confess that it feels a little bit to some of us, to me, to some of us, I think that we've had a troublemaking goat sort of wreaking havoc for a few years now in our midst. And this week, it probably wouldn't have been a, a good idea for someone to come to this reverend, uh, assuming this is the person closest to God who might have an answer to all this trouble. Um, I've felt more like the drunk goat uh, than the reverend with the answers a lot of this week, if I'm honest. And I'm only standing at the edge of the chaos that has sort of engulfed Brittany and the kids. Um, and a lot of you can relate to that. I mean, our focus has been on them this week with good reason, 
but they aren't the only ones who have suffered in the last few years. A lot of us have suffered with them, and we've suffered our own loss in the loss of Brock and in walking with them. And a lot of you and a lot of us have suffered all kinds of other losses. People have lost parents and friends and been through real difficulty with sickness and financial change, all kinds of things that it feels like have just been, has just been brewing in our midst. It feels like we've had loss and brokenness on so many fronts. Um, and in, inevitably, some are gonna get uh, more attention and triage than others. They all matter. No death, no difficulty is insignificant in our midst. Uh, and when these things come and sort of shake our foundations, we often sort of mentally have the right answers. If we've grown up in the church, if we're Christians and we've been taught this is the correct doctrine, this is what happens in life and how you respond to it when hard things happen and how you know where God is and what he's... We, we often know all of the right answers if we were given a test um, we have all those essential components of knowledge or belief or doctrine, but we can't always seem to fit them together when this stuff comes in a way that we can reconcile that stuff with the reality that we're living in. And, and sometimes it's the relentlessness, relentlessness of that reality that we're living in that makes it hard for us to make sense of all those answers that we have. So I think it's been a, good, a, a bit easier for some of us to relate to Good Friday or to what we did last week and walking through these stations of the cross, the suffering of Jesus, than it has been to relate to Easter or to feel that hope and that joy of Easter. And um, that, that doesn't make any of you uniquely messed up or shallow in your faith, if that's the case for you. I've watched so-called spiritual giants brought to their knees by a fraction of what some of you have experienced in the last few years. I've seen renowned systematic theologians who have on paper created the way of making sense of all these things for hundreds or thousands of other people completely undone by suffering and loss. And all of their paper answers didn't do it when that entered their life. And so, um, as we reflected last week, as we reflected on these, these stations of the cross, if you weren't with us, these 12 paintings on the sides of the, in the room here uh, depict the stations of the cross, the journey that Jesus walked of suffering up to the cross. Um, as we reflected on these last week, I assure you that not only were there spiritual giants of our day, but the disciples, the early disciples of Jesus themselves were devastated from Good Friday to, to Easter Sunday, and some of them well beyond because they couldn't make sense of what happened immediately on Easter Sunday, right? But they, these were people who, as we talked about last week, were following a man that they were convinced, this is the Messiah, this is, this is the one. And then all of a sudden, for three days, he was another dead body. That was their reality. It may sound like sacrilege for some of you from, to talk about Jesus that way, but that's what he was to them after he died. And so for some of you, as a life has unfolded, you've watched your own faith go through Good Friday and die. And you're now sitting in that in-between, waiting to see if anything will come alive again. That's where some of us are, where some of you are. Um, and if we're honest, if we're kind of trying to get a feel for the room, because not everybody's in the same place, some of you have a faith that has moved forward from your own struggles or the struggles that you've walked through with other people. 
and you're doing fine and you're kind of weary from walking through all the difficulty or being around all the difficulty. We don't like to say that out loud, but that happens. It happens to all of us. And some of us are dealing with that uh, now or in certain times. And I'm not a systematic theologian, and even if I was, I wouldn't be able to give you a perfect explanation for any of that. And I certainly wouldn't be able to enable you to no longer feel the pain or the suffering or the emptiness of a fractured faith. I I can't give you that today. What I can offer today and what I want to do briefly today is very, very simple. Uh, I think it's important for us to acknowledge life as it is full of struggle and pain and joy and hope and all of those things often mixed together in a way that we just don't know how to make sense of. And in the midst of that, I can point to Jesus. To Jesus as he suffers, to Jesus as he dies, and to Jesus as he walks out of a grave where he was dead and buried, completely dead, fully dead and buried. And so as we do those two things, I think we find power not in completely understanding, that's not the goal, but in being able to see, to see our reality as it is, to acknowledge it, to understand that um, it is, life is as it is, and at times it's very difficult. But to see that, to see our reality as it is, to see a new reality break through in Jesus and to see that new reality, that new kingdom, not just a new cosmic reality, which is what breaks through in Jesus, there's a new reality for all of creation when he comes in, but to see that create new life, really create a new kind of living for us specifically. And a, a life that is not free from difficulty, but a new life that's actually born out of Jesus's affliction in ours. And that's, that's where I want our eyes to go today. I want us to understand when we throw around religious phrases, when we talk about resurrection, when we talk about life from death, what does that mean? What does it mean for us actually to see new life emerge through, to come out of our suffering and even death? The scriptures don't shy away from our reality even after that first Easter, and even as people who know and follow Jesus, the reality is often harsh. Uh, and I want us to look at a couple of passages of Scripture that acknowledge that. These first two passages that we're going to look at, Brittany texted to several of us before we went to her house yesterday morning, and it kind of altered the direction of, of what I'm doing even today. Um, but in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. It's another translation that handles part of that passage this way. It says in verse 8, We are bewildered at times, but we do not give in to despair. And then I love this phrasing. We always carry around in our bodies the reality of the brutal death and suffering of Jesus. As a result, his resurrection life rises 
and reveals its wondrous power in our bodies as well. For while we live, we are constantly handed over to death on account of Jesus, so that his life may be revealed even in our mortal bodies of flesh. And then in the next chapter in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul goes on to say this. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, if indeed when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden, because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So there's some good news for us here, if you mine it out, if you sort of distill out the good news, but it's not really the good news that we're often looking for in the midst of hardship or suffering. We're looking for an end to our suffering. We're looking for it to relent. We're looking for a limit. We're looking to hit that point where it's reasonable for us to say, this is enough, and anything past this point is too much. And so when we cross that threshold of what feels like enough and what becomes too much, we suddenly have a problem with God. I had a problem with God Tuesday. (laughs) I spent most of Tuesday in my head just saying, this is too much. It's too much. And that's what we're looking for when things are hard for us or for people we love. We're looking for that point where it stops and we can say, ah, God sees us. God is good because he has put a stop to these circumstances which feel like too much. But Paul doesn't talk about suffering that way. He doesn't talk about suffering with Jesus or even resurrection in exactly that way. He says... We don't have a tent or a dwelling that we're looking for that's finally safe and secure circumstantially. He says we have a tent that's being destroyed. That's what we have in our bodies, in our physical dwelling places. We have things that are being destroyed, and we're carrying around in our bodies the reality of the brutal death and suffering of Jesus. That's what Paul says is our reality. And he doesn't put a limit on it. He doesn't say we carry that around until it's too much. That's just our reality, he says. And he references a way of living in those conditions that trusts something bigger and something better is going on, which sounds nice, and we can generally live by that when things are running smoothly. It's just that when the destruction comes, when we experience the reality of what he's talking about here, the reality of the brutal death and suffering of Jesus. It's hard to just close our eyes and click our heels together and say there's no place like home and think about heaven and feel better about everything. It just doesn't work, or it doesn't work for very long, or it doesn't work for most of us. But that kind of escapism is not the answer anyway. It's what a lot of Christianity will sell you. It will sell you, just pretend that what's happening isn't happening, or just think or focus on heaven enough that you don't really feel it, or you don't really experience the reality of what we're going through. It's just not from the scriptures. The scriptures don't tell us that's how we can live and be okay. That kind of escapism is not the answer. We're not gonna feel better just waiting for relief 
or just blindly trusting that God has our best interest in mind while we're suffering. We're going to experience real life even as we carry around the suffering of Jesus in our bodies when we get a glimpse of this new reality of the kingdom that comes in with Jesus. In John 11, Jesus says this to people talking about life and death and eternity and resurrection. He says this, you don't have to wait for the end. I am right now resurrection and life. Those who believe in me will live even in death. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? And that's a question that we get asked, I think, by the Lord in the midst of our suffering. And an answer most of the time is, I want to believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. I want to believe this, but I'm having a hard time reconciling my reality with this truth. Paul walks through, I think, the essence of this, of what God is doing in and through Jesus in the book of Romans. And I want to take you through three quick passages from Romans where he takes us through what I think is come, what comes in Jesus, the way that this new reality, this new kingdom breaks into even our most difficult circumstances through Jesus. In Romans 4, he describes God, the God that is revealed in Jesus, as the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. One of my favorite passages in all of the scripture. This is the God we're talking about. And it matters as context for the next two things you're going to see him write. This is who he believes. This is who he understands God revealed in Jesus to be. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He is changing reality as we understand it. Jesus is when he comes and brings his kingdom. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says this. To put it another way, if we have been united with him to share in a death like his, don't you understand that we will also share in his resurrection? We know this, whatever we used to be with our old sinful ways has been nailed to his cross. So our entire record of sin has been canceled and we no longer have to bow down to sin's power. A dead man, you see, cannot be bound by sin. But if we have died with the anointed one, we believe that we shall also live together with him. So we stand firm in the conviction that death holds no power over God's anointed because he was resurrected from the dead, never to face death again. When he died, he died to whatever power sin had once and for all, and now he lives completely to God. So here is how to picture yourself now that you have been initiated into Jesus the anointed. You are dead to sin's power and influence, but you are alive to God's rule. New reality. He's changed the rules under which we live. In Romans 8, he says this, And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. To put it succinctly, Paul is saying, in his death and resurrection, Jesus 
in the way that we would like to think, we think in, t- in terms of time, we think most often in a linear fashion. And so in the way that we would like to think Jesus would come in and put an end to sin and suffering and death, we think, well, once he shows up, that should be the end of it. And this is often why we get angry or bitter or confused about who God is and whether he's real, whether he really loves us, because our expectation is that if that's all true, if all these things we say about God and his love are true, then he should step into time and that should be the end of all of the heartbreak. There shouldn't be any after Jesus arrived on the scene, but that's not how it works. To do it that way would be wonderful in a sense if he had done that but it wouldn't be complete. It would create this marking in time where, hallelujah, no more suffering or death from this point forward, but the whole history of the world before that moment would stand as this unthinkable sadness. Because yeah, at some point God came and put an end to it, but thousands of years of death and devastation before that that he's he's done nothing about. He just finally put a stop to it. We'd still have questions about his character and who he is. The cross would become a monument to the absence of God and all the suffering before Jesus came. If that's how, how it worked, if that's what God had done. But at the cross, Jesus is not just stepping into time and doing something completely new, making everything that happened before irrelevant. He's not just closing the book on everything that came prior to his life, his death, and his resurrection. He's working, the scriptures tell us, he's working within that creation, within that time, within that story, to actually undo the ugliness inside of it, past, present, and future. It's more than just putting a stop to something that's been going on. It's coming within that thing and undoing all the sadness for all time. It's actually taking the power, even of the brokenness that came before Jesus, and and removing the power. He's abolishing from within our world, within our actual lived lives, everything that corrupts and damages and attempts to destroy his good creation, including and especially life itself. So instead of just putting an end to suffering and death once and for all, he actually unravels the power of sin and suffering and death, and he reverses its effects for all time. So though our sufferings remain with us physically, We know this is true. There's no amount of preaching or pretending that will change that. We know that even after Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, our hardship and our our sufferings are still here. They're still with us. When we experience them, we are bearing in our bodies the brutal suffering and death of Jesus that reverses the curse of sin and death. That's the good news. It's hard to get our heads around. But when we're told we bear in our bodies that brutal suffering and death, we are bearing in our bodies the events, the reality that undo suffering and sin and death. The suffering and death of Jesus is the means by which God is swallowing up all of sin and suffering and death in himself. And when we suffer, we participate in that. And remember, Paul described it this way, we're always carrying around in our bodies 
the reality of the brutal death and suffering of Jesus, as a result, his resurrection life rises and reveals its wondrous power in our bodies as well. This is what's happening. We are bearing in our bodies that force which actually undoes all of the sadness and death and suffering in the end. It's where resurrection comes from, is our participating in the sufferings of Jesus. And he says, for while we live, I think this is his way of saying, as long as you're alive on this earth, we're constantly handed over to death on account of Jesus so that his life may be revealed even in our mortal bodies of flesh. It sounds cliche and simple to say there's no resurrection without a death. That's the essence of what's happening here. But it's not just because that makes for a pretty story. It's because in his death and resurrection, Jesus is undoing, not just putting a stop to, undoing the power of those things. And this transforms every experience of suffering and death for us in a way that is uniquely dependent on Jesus, in a way that our, our, our tough times, our worst times, can't be transformed by even the most sincere, shared human suffering, people going through that along with us, or the most sincere human comfort absence the presence of Jesus in and through those humans. Christian Wyman, uh, a writer, describes it this way. He says, herein lies the great difference between divine weakness and human weakness, the wounds of Christ and the wounds of man. Two human weaknesses only intensify each other. But human weakness plus Christ's weakness equals a supernatural strength. This is us bearing in our bodies his suffering and death. This is him coming alongside and living with us in our suffering. And this change in how we experience and understand our hardships and the suffering of those around us is the revelation of the new life I talked about that I think we experience as the kingdom breaks into this reality. We experience new life. Our life changes. Paul describes it this way in Philippians 1. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Our life changes. That reality that the kingdom brings into this world becomes our reality, and it alters the way that we see life and death. Philippians 3 he says this, but whatever I used to count as my greatest accomplishments, I've written them off as a loss because of the anointed one. And more so, I now realize that all I gained and thought was important was nothing but yesterday's garbage compared to knowing the anointed Jesus, my Lord. For him, I have thrown everything aside. It's nothing but a pile of waste so that I may gain him. When it counts, I want to be found belonging to him, not clinging to my own righteousness based on law, but actively relying on the faithfulness of the anointed one. This is true righteousness, supplied by God, acquired by faith. I want to know him inside and out. And then he says this thing, uh, which is either transformative or crazy, depending on how you encounter it. I want to experience the power of his resurrection and join in his suffering shaped by his death, so that I may arrive safely at the resurrection from the dead. That statement in verse 10 is insanity, unless we understand and believe that when we follow Jesus and still suffer, 
We are joining him in his suffering when, and, and when we're being shaped by his death. It's actually the way that we join in his reversal of the curse of sin and death and experience his resurrection in our own lives and our own communities. It's just crazy unless we believe and embrace by, by that kind of participation with him, we're joining in the undoing of all the sadness. We don't ultimately, Paul's reassurance here is that we don't ultimately need to fear that these hardships will be our undoing. Not that we don't need to feel them, not that they shouldn't be painful, not that we shouldn't even have these moments when we're brought to our knees and we say, where are you, God? The psalmist does that nonstop. That's not the point. The point is that we don't ultimately need to fear that these hardships will be our undoing because Jesus has already taken all the pain and shame and sin and death that the world has to offer, and by letting it do its worst to him, he destroyed and even reversed its power so that now when we experience it, it doesn't have that kind of power anymore. He took it all. He took the sting out of it. We still experience it, but the, the ultimate outcome of it is not the same. So now... In this new reality, in this new life, nothing can stop the new creation. Jesus has taken the worst that the world can throw, and nothing can stop the new creation. And in fact, our sufferings now become markers of new life, because by and through them comes resurrection. I want to show you one last thing that I think is really remarkable, uh, and I'm almost done. In Luke, in Luke chapter four, after uh, chapter twenty-four, after he's resurrected, Jesus appears to his followers, who are understandably disturbed by him being there, as much as you know they didn't want him to die, and it has wrecked their world. Um, it's odd that he's there uh, after he was dead, and he says this. I don't think we have it on the screen for some reason but I'm going to read it to you. Jesus said to them, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. In his resurrected body, the wounds of Jesus are still visible. It's not something I've given a lot of thought to. <laughs> After his death and resurrection, you can still see the wounds. This is part of how he demonstrates to his followers that it's him, that he's really there. N.T. Wright says this. The context here is he's talking about which of our physical characteristics now might be visible in our resurrected bodies, and he says this. All we can surmise from the picture of Jesus' resurrection is that just as his wounds were still visible, not now as sources of pain and death, but as signs of his victory, so the Christian's risen body will bear such marks of his or her loyalty to God's particular calling as are appropriate, not least where that has involved suffering. This is amazing to me to think about. That in our resurrected reality, we'll still bear the marks of what we suffer if, if, if it's anything like Jesus. I can't tell you that for sure, but that's what it sure looks like. 
here, what we bear in this life in our bodies and what we do with our lives in our bodies is not just how we're filling the space until the coming resurrection, until our deaths or the coming resurrection, however you're looking at your life and death. It is building lasting reality, eternal reality right now. We sang this part of 1 Corinthians 15. The band's going to come up and we're going to sing again in just a moment. We sang this part of 1 Corinthians 15 a moment ago, but look at, look at how Paul talks about how we experience suffering and how much it matters. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever worthless. What we do, what we experience now is not wasted. It's not worthless. It's not in vain. It will come to fulfillment and completion in God's future. That includes our suffering. That includes our hardship. Is it still painful? <laughs> Absolutely. And sometimes it's painful beyond what we can bear ourselves. We're carrying in our bodies. It's silly, silly for Christians to belittle pain and suffering, to try to pretend that it's no big deal. Paul says we're carrying in our bodies the brutal reality of Jesus' suffering and death. That's what we're carrying around sometimes. And it feels like too much at times. But we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're bewildered. This week, we've been bewildered but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, we're not forsaken, we're struck down, we're not destroyed. Because for while we live, we're always being given up to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, it is. But life is at work in you. We're not just toiling to make the best of things to mitigate the damage, to pass the time until the end. We are filled with the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and we are building with that power into God's future, good or bad, that comes at us. We're filled with that power, and we're building into God's future. All of our labor, all of our investment that is fueled by the spirit of resurrection is even now eternal. It's not temporary. It's not just for now, it has a place in God's future and your future. These things we build, even in our deepest sadness and suffering, will have a place in the eternal kingdom. They won't be merely memories in heaven, good memories or bad memories. They will be part of the new creation. They will be markings of resurrection victory because, as Paul says, this God who we serve who is revealed in the crucified and resurrected Jesus is the God who gives life to the dead and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Pray with me. Father, we stand uh, as people 
known by you. Uh, Some of us feel that. Some of us feel known and cared for and loved. Some don't feel that. Most of us fluctuate in and out of it in different ways. But I speak by faith tonight that you do see us, that you do love us, and that Jesus, his birth, his life, his death on the cross, that brutal suffering that he endured, is the ultimate evidence that you see us. And so, as your people, carry around in our bodies that suffering and that death. But we do that with hope. And today is the day when we deliberately mark our confession that all our hope is stored up in you. That if we're going to bear this brutal reality, that it will result in real life. So fill us with that faith. If we, if, if, fill us with that faith. That there is not only Good Friday, there is not only the cross, there is not only the absence of you speaking or you working, but there is in that darkness a reversal of everything that stung us there is resurrection through the real resurrection Jesus who overcame death and who now gives us that same spirit show us who you are change our lives by the power of your resurrection